This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm a board-certified emergency critical care specialist and toxicologist. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal from the Morse Animal Foundation. We'll be right back after these messages. As a veterinarian, I want you to keep your dog as healthy and happy as possible. Well, you may have read a lot about bone broth's benefits for dogs, but if you're like me, you're too busy to cook bones for hours. So why not check out Rockwell Pets Pro Natural Dog Bone Broth? It comes in the convenience of a dry product, and you just sprinkle the powder on top of your dog's regular meal. It helps relieve arthritis pain with its anti-inflammatory turmeric and boosts appetite, even for finicky eaters. Plus, it's fast and easy, and you don't have to boil any bones. It's vet approved, made in the U.S., and comes with a money back guarantee. For more information, check out RockwellPetsPro.com. That's RockwellPetsPro.com. Let's talk pets on PetLifeRadio.com. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal, who's a board-certified internal medicine specialist and the Senior Director of Science and Communications at Morse Animal Foundation. Now, for those of you guys who've never heard of Morse Animal Foundation, I recommend that you go to morseanimalfoundation.org to get some more information. Morris Animal Foundation is a granting agency. It's an animal health charity. It's based out of Colorado, the United States, and it funds veterinary research for companion animals, horses, and wildlife all around the world. Dr. Deal, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Justine. I appreciate a chance to talk about the organization. So what exactly is Morse Animal Foundation? I know I gave a little bit of an intro, but do you mind just telling us a little bit about how it originated, what it is, and more importantly, how it helps our pets, our horses, our wildlife around the world today? Absolutely. Well, we've been around a long time. We've been around since 1948, and we were started by a veterinarian, Dr. Mark Moore Sr., who was very concerned that there was a lack of research specifically focused on the health, um, you know, important health problems in animals. And we started by funding dogs and cats, which was really his area of expertise. And then we moved to horses and then wildlife. So we get grants from researchers all around the world who have a, you know, a question they want to answer about a specific health problem. And we're, so we're granting agencies. So we raise money, evaluate the grants and then fund them. 
Now, I know that Morse Animal Foundation has really supported research for some key areas. And we've talked about that in a previous episode of ER Vet. So I definitely recommend that you check that out. We talked about the use of tramadol. We talked about the importance about what you need to know if you're still feeding your dog or your cat a grain-free food because there's a risk of dilated cardiomyopathy. We also talked about certain supplements that may or may not help. So please make sure to check that out. Dr. Deal, what I wanted to talk to you about today is this really well-known study called the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. Now, I know Golden Retrievers are one of the top 10 most popular dogs in the United States. It's probably one of the top three most popular dogs in Minnesota, where I practice. And this applies to so many dog owners out there right now. Even if you're not a dog owner, you still have to pay attention. So, First of all, Dr. Deal, what exactly is this lifetime study? And do you mind just giving us a little bit of information about some of the research results that you guys found in the study? Right. So this study is the only study that we are managing kind of internally, right? We came up with this idea of looking at golden retrievers over their lifetime. And at the heart of this study is it is a cancer risk factor study. And Unfortunately, as probably a lot of your listeners know, if they own golden retrievers, this is a breed that has a very high incidence of cancer. They, at least 60%, I think, are the estimates of dogs, golden retrievers that will die of cancer. And we know cancer is a big problem in dogs anyway, right? And so this was conceived as a cancer risk factor study. And the way to get at that was to really look at dogs, enroll them when they're puppies and follow them through their whole lifetime. So this is a longitudinal study. It used the Framingham Heart Study, which people may be familiar with that has been looking, I think it's in its fourth or fifth generation now of people who live in Framingham, Massachusetts, and it follows them. And it was conceived of as a a study to look at risk factors for heart disease. Okay. So we're doing the same thing with golden retrievers. These guys live their lives. We don't intervene in any way. They eat what they want. They swim, they exercise, they get spayed or neutered. They don't get spayed or neutered. They are show dogs. They are couch potatoes. They, we've got all different kinds of dogs. And we have 3,044 when we were fully enrolled. That's how many dogs are participating in this study. We're, we've lost, unfortunately, several dogs um, because they're reaching middle age now. And as expected, we are losing dogs to cancer and a variety of other diseases, but cancer is way up there as far as cause of death in these dogs. We capture all kinds of data. People have to fill out, it's well over 100 questions on everything from exercise, but it's real specific. So we might say, does your dog swim? Oh, it does. Okay. Does it swim in the ocean, a pond by your house, a lake, a swimming pool? And then we even ask, what is the average temperature of the water that the dog swims in? Does your dog live in a house? Great. Where does it sleep? What flooring do you have in the house? What's your primary heating source? We have a huge section on diet. And my favorite example is we'll ask, does your dog eat vegetables? Yes, good. What kind of vegetables? Oh, bell peppers. What color of bell pepper does your dog eat? So you guys can get an idea. This is a just gigantic questionnaire. The veterinarians taking care of these dogs also fill out an annual questionnaire and we collect urine, feces, blood, hair, toenails every year on these dogs. 
Plus, if they develop cancer, we get um, tissue samples of the cancer and more blood work and feces and urine from these dogs if they're diagnosed. So you can see we've got a lot of different samples, biological samples, data points, which we anticipate will be about 5 million samples by the time the study's done, which is we're halfway through and we're, we're hitting about nine years into it. So probably we're a little over halfway. We figure it'll take 14 to 15 years for the dogs to progress, right? They may not all be gone by that point, but there's a good chance that they will be. Okay. So we've got all this data and what we did is open it to researchers. We said, Hey, come with your questions ask us for, we'll help you with data. We can provide samples, which we provide for free to people. The only thing they need to do is actually pay for the shipping because sometimes that can be expensive, but, and they have to find funding for analysis, but we have all these different people who've come to us. So we're always processing requests, looking at all different kinds of things. So I think we talked in the last podcast when I was on a little bit about Dr. Josh Stern, who's looking at dilated cardiomyopathy and of course, golden retrievers. And he has retrieved samples and data from us to look at that question, which we're hoping we'll have an answer soon. We worked with Embark a genetics company, and they came to us and they needed DNA, which we have. So we provided genetic material and again, data for them. We have some residents who are playing around in our database just to learn how to do analysis. And they're looking at different questions such as parasites in our cohort, you know, what kind of parasites they have in their feces. They're looking at, which will be interesting, blood work changes associated with the feeding of raw food diets. And they're crunching those numbers. One of the biggest analyses we did though, is because all of our dogs, as I mentioned, are middle-aged, we decided to look back and say, well, let's try to answer some questions about timing of spay neuter and health outcomes. And we're going to look at this again, right? Because I think that's a very hot question in the development of certain cancers. And there's a lot of data out there that is often quite conflicting about spay, neuter, and cancer. But what we decided to look at was spay, neuter, and the development of overweight or obesity, and also non-traumatic orthopedic injury, which is a fancy name for like, mostly these guys had cruciate ligament tears that's in your knee. That's the football injury, right? When you pivot and you, or we're in Colorado, so we see it a lot with skiing injuries and the influence of spaying and neutering on that particular condition. So this is a really, really big paper we published, oh gosh, uh, going on two years now. And what we found was we divided the dog into three groups, dogs who were spayed or neutered. We didn't discriminate boys from girls. We just put them all. So that neutered under six months of age, between six and 12 months of age. And then a final group, um, and then spayed and neutered over 12 months of age. So those were our three spay neuter groups. The control group was dogs that were intact, right? And as you can imagine in this study, we have a fair number of dogs that are show dogs, and our breeding dogs. So we had a good group to compare to. And we looked at all of them and looked at the incidence of overweight and obesity. And what we found was that no matter when you spayed or neutered them, so whether it was under six months, six to 12 months, or over 12 months, they if you take all the other factors and equalize them. So that means exercise and what, you know, dogs are doing. If you take those out of the equation, what we found is that at all time points, if you spay and neuter, 
your dog has a higher incidence of overweight and obesity. And that was statistically significant. Boys, girls didn't matter. It's just that, again, you had a higher incidence no matter when you did it. With the orthopedic injury, what we found is that the dogs who were spayed or neutered under six months of age did have a higher incidence that was statistically significant, again, equilibrating for other things, including weight, right? Because you think, well, if they're overweight or obese, right, well, maybe that would contribute to them tearing um, a cruciate ligament. But when, again, when you equilibrate for all of that, it definitely showed that if you spayed or neutered under six months of age, you had a higher incidence of orthopedic injury. If it was over six months of age, so again, those two groups, six to 12 months, 12 months or older for getting spayed or neutered, that association went away. So the conclusion that we came from this was you have to be careful no matter when you spay or neuter at least in golden retrievers, your dog, because you got to really watch their weight, right? So even if they're spayed older, they still had a propensity to become overweight and obese, even when you're, again, equilibrating for exercise and other stuff. And for sure, under six months of age, they have a higher incidence of cruciate rupture. And we wanted to add to the conversation that's out there about delaying spay neuter in large breed dogs till they're older, right? And I think intuitively we know that dogs mature and reach puberty and adulthood at different times, right? Smaller breed dogs tend to do that earlier than large breed dogs. So at least in golden retrievers, and again, this has been kind of seen in other breeds, though not in the same way we looked at it, is that waiting till at least over six months, so uh, some people are talking over a year, to consider spay-neuter. So that's a really big finding we found from the study that's been published. We also did a really, a little paper in conjunction with an epidemiologist, Dr. Audrey Rupel at Purdue University, and she wanted to look at what factors kept people, how they answered our questionnaire, which I just mentioned, were there questions that were associated with their staying in the study? Because you set up this giant study, you're spending a lot of money to, um, it's a $32 million study by the time it's done. So it's a enormous lift on our part to uh, fund this thing. And she wanted to know, well, what helps people stay? Like, were there questions that were really key to indicating this person is more likely to stay in the study? And while not everything panned out, but interestingly, where your dog slept. So if your dog slept in the bedroom with you, those people were more likely to stay in the study than if the dog slept elsewhere, particularly if you had like a kennel someplace in the garage was one of the questions that those people were less likely to stay in the study. And I think when you think about it, you might say, well, maybe those people are more engaged, right? That with their animals that have them sleep in the room with them. But, you know, we have lots of other questions, but there were a few that one sticks out in particular. And the idea was that would be a way of maybe if you were constructing another study to look at people and know who would be most likely to stay in a study versus not stay in the study, because it's really crucial for us, right, to have people stick with it year after year after year. 
information. So when it comes to spaying or neutering, is the general recommendation for golden retrievers to be at least one year of age? And my second question is, did they find in that study, was it related to decreased metabolism or increased obesity with that slowed metabolism that could have influenced that? Right. Well, definitely. I think what we would look at with our study is, you know, at least over six months, if not over a year, this finding was independent of their body weight or in body condition score. So we actually looked at body can, right? We have everybody do the body condition score. And I think a lot of your listeners may be familiar with the Purina scale on, you know, looking at the body uh, condition because we know weight can be deceiving if you're very muscular, same thing for us. So independent of body weight, which was really important to know, right? So it had to do with spay neuter at a certain time, but independent of being overweight because right, you could make the argument. We don't know about metabolism. We do have a researcher who's looking at the microbiome of obese versus lean dogs right now, but looking at um, we know that the microbiome, the gut bugs that live in our gut, right, are different in people who are lean and obese. And there's all kinds of weird studies in mice where you can give lean mice and you take their poop and you give it to overweight mice and they become lean and vice versa. And, and so it's important, but we don't have a good grip on it in animals yet. So it'll be interesting to look at that. But we do have some people who are thinking exactly along your lines that they may want to look at these samples to look at metabolites, right? So we have all these blood samples and look at them to see if they can, right, explain some of this through the metabolites that are present in the blood. Um, but we're not quite there yet with people looking at it, but we've got it. We've got the samples. Key question. Can we apply this to other breeds? Yeah, that's a really good question. And do we stick our neck out a little bit? I think people have been talking about, and as I mentioned before, I have a Labrador and I know that my current lab is, you know, well over almost a decade ago when I was still in practice, we were talking, right? It was that starting to talk about with my surgeons about when to spay neuter in relation to orthopedic injury. And I think there's more and more and more evidence that larger breed dogs, it should be delayed. And some of that has to do, you asked about metabolism, it may have to do with hormone dose. So if we think of hormone dose as how long are you exposed to estrogens or testosterone, right? Um, all the reproductive hormones, there's some evidence that they influence bone development and tendon and ligament development. And you need a quote, certain dose to for those structures to form properly. And I think people know this, though there's still, you know, some controversy. So I would say that our findings, though some people argue, and it's a criticism of the paper, well, yeah, but you're talking about Goldens, is I think our thought is, well, we, we think it applies, may have broader application to larger breed dogs. And that because they reach maturity later, they may need a certain quote, dose of hormone. What I see happening in the future, as we do more precision medicine, and we learn more, we're going to see like a sweet spot, right? For almost every breed that we can look at data and go, 
we may be able to make very precise recommendations, but I think it's not a stretch. And I don't think I'm sticking my neck out too far to say larger breed dogs should probably be spayed or neutered later in life. Certainly probably not under six months. So applicable. When in doubt, please talk to your veterinarian about the best time to spay and neuter. Obviously, you know, veterinarians are always proponents of it to help reduce pet overpopulation. Uh, You definitely want to talk to your veterinarian about that. We'll continue with this really important topic right after these messages from our sponsors. As a veterinarian, I want you to keep your dog as healthy and happy as possible. That's why I'm a huge advocate of Brockwell's Pets Pro Probiotics. Probiotics are used to help stabilize and strengthen the intestinal flora. They have a lot of positive effects on the entire body system. Simply sprinkle the desired amount on your dog's food and it can help boost the immune system, treat diarrhea and constipation, restore gut health, and lower cholesterol levels. Plus, it's vet recommended, made in the U.S., and comes with a money-back guarantee. For more information, go to rockwellpetspro.com. That's rockwellpetspro.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. We're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal, a board-certified internal medicine specialist with the Morse Animal Foundation. And so far, we've talked about some of the pivotal research that Morse Animal Foundation has supported, including the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study. Now, Dr. Deal, now I want to focus on cats. Do you mind just telling me a little bit about the fat cat study? And no, just because your cat is obese, this doesn't apply to you, but really important to know. So for cats that have potentially heart disease or were diagnosed with something called a saddle thrombus, do you mind just talking a little bit about what the fat cat study found and how this may influence the longevity of how long cats can live with heart disease and what different medication options that we have for treating our cats with heart disease? Right. And um, this has been actually, uh, you mentioned uh, saddle thrombus, and this has been an area of research that has been a huge focus for Morris for over a decade. The Fat Cat study was one of the first studies, a big study that we funded that looked at the difference between clopidogrel, which is Plavix for folks out there, a really, really, very common drug used in people for stroke prevention. If you have heart disease, if you've ever had a stent put in, you know, people are going to put you on Plavix. And whether Plavix was effective in cats for helping with saddle thrombus versus low-dose aspirin. And I think there are probably a lot of folks out there, right, taking their little baby aspirin every day. And what this study wanted to look at was aspirin versus clopidogrel pedigrel as a uh, effective treatment for preventing saddle thrombus. And aspirin can be problematic, as you know, as an ER vet, is cats are really, really sensitive to NSAIDs, right? They process them differently. There can be really hard to dose. They're sensitive to the side effects. So even though aspirin is, you know, a good drug for plot prevention, there was some concern, A, is it effective in cats? And B, boy, if we had an alternative to using an NSAID in a cat, that'd probably be a good thing. And what the fat cat study, and these results have been published 
many years now, found was clopidogrel is a great drug, right, for use in cats. And we use it quite a bit. We've done some recent clopidogrel studies because interestingly, just like in people, there are clopidogrel sometimes falls short in cats and people start to say, why? Well, in people, we know that when they give us clopidogrel, we don't all respond to it in the same way. We metabolize it differently and has different effectiveness. We know this for warfarin, coumadin as well in people. And we have uh, researchers at University of California, Davis, Dr. Ron Lee has been looking at this for a long time. And he is finding there are probably genetic differences in cats, just like there are in people, in how they respond to clopidogrel. So the idea would be to develop a genetic test where you would look at your cat, just like they would look at me. They would test me if I was going to go on, for example, Coumadin and say, are you, do you need a high dose, a medium dose, a low dose, right? Because people differ in their ability to, um, and how they respond to Coumadin. And it looks like the same thing will happen in cats. So we've seen a progression from aspirin, Plavix, yes, no, okay, Plavix works, great. Oh, but it doesn't always work. And what's the difference? And so now we're moving to even fine tuning it further, which is looking at how cats respond to the drug in different ways so that you could, again, precisely titrate the dose for your kitty, which would be awesome. And so that's something we've been looking at. Another sort of adjunct to arterial thromboembolism is we know that these saddle thrombi are thrown because you have heart disease, right? And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where the walls of the heart get really thick is um, the most common kind of heart disease in cats. And it's pretty common and we see it. it it's not even breed specific, right? A lot of our cats are domestic short hairs, and, but they get this disease and that thickening predisposes you to having clots. And one really, really exciting study that we funded, which was really nifty out of Tufts University run by Dr. Elizabeth Rosansky, was she developed a two to three minute heart screening test that she trained veterinarians to perform with ultrasounds. And so many people have ultrasounds in their practice now. It doesn't have to be a big, fancy, giant cardiac machine. It can be a, a you know sort of smaller unit and learn how to screen cats for this disease, like if they're in for their yearly checkup. And so it doesn't even have to be a cat that you suspect has heart disease. And she was able to teach veterinarians with a high degree of sensitivity and specificity. So they were really good, bottom line, at picking up heart disease in cats. The early heart disease is more subtle, but they even did a pretty good job on that. But for sure, we know that a lot of cats have heart disease and they are completely asymptomatic until something bad happens, like they throw a saddle thrombus. So this screening tool is awesome for veterinarians in private practice, you don't have to be a specialist to be able to screen cats quite well for these problems. So that's a really exciting and very practical study and that we've funded that uh, people can use in practice. So that is kind of some of our latest heart disease. We're doing a little bit more again with the clopidogrel study, a little bit more on, we have one study in Georgia that's still going on that's looking at other anticoagulants for using cats and they're still recruiting into that study. So it's pretty cool. And it's actually looking at recurrence, preventing what are the best drugs for preventing recurrence. If you've had a clot and you survived, well, you don't want to go through that again and people don't want to do it and it can be expensive. So how, what's the best drug to prevent that? 
I will say I'm a colleague with Dr. Elizabeth Rosansky, and she's a fantastic, amazing criticalist. And you know, she focuses so much on respiratory. So I love the fact that you guys are supporting ways that we as veterinary professionals can improve the rapid diagnosis of what we call occult or hidden heart disease. Now, for all you cat owners out there, I will tell you, I hate cat heart disease. And here's why. Because typically when dogs have heart disease, they usually have a heart murmur. And that means when I listen with my stethoscope, instead of the clear, crisp, beep, 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 I hear a Well, the frustrating thing about cats is cats can have really severe heart disease. And when I listen with my stethoscope, it sounds completely normal. And again, it can be a bit frustrating, especially if your cat presents with acute saddle thrombus. So love what you're doing. Really appreciate that, that research that you guys are funding. All right. Last thing I wanted to ask you about anyone who is hip into technology knows about nanoparticles. (laughs) And these are tiny, tiny, tiny little particles that are so small. I remember having to study and learn about this from my toxicology boards. But tell me a little bit about some of the information about iron nanoparticles being used to help find cancer. Yeah, this is a really cool study that's being done at Colorado State University. And what they're doing is they're putting iron in these little nanoparticles. And then cancer cells tend to take these particles up more readily. And for in particular, what they want to look at at CSU is spread of head and neck cancer. Head and neck cancers of both dogs and cats are really nasty. And um, this study, they're starting with dogs, but they'll hopefully move to cats. And what they want to know is what's the spread? Like, can we detect this? Which would be important in people, right? They try to stage us and say, well, is it in your nodes? You know, has the cancer spread? And But it can be real subtle with head and neck. And so the nanoparticles are being used to pick up cancer before anything's really obvious. Like there's a big giant lymph node. It's more, much more sensitive than doing CT scans alone because these particles are taken up very, very early. So these would be very normal looking structures if you did a CT scan, if you, you know, looked in the neck, this would look like a very normal lymph node, but it's not. And the idea is to be able to pick up cancer spread quickly and be able to do something right about that before you next thing you know, you've got a big lymph node and it's probably spread elsewhere. So it's a very early cancer detection system and it is really looking promising again in dogs. Right now, it's not going to be something your vet, your local vet's going to have, but it should spread quickly to referral facilities where a lot of us, you know, might take a pet that has cancer, right, for special specialized treatment. And it's also going to be tried in cats, but early preliminary results look really, really good. They're wrapping that study up soon. And I think that information is already getting out there to veterinarians. Dr. Deal, thank you so much for all that you do with Morse Animal Foundation. Do you mind just giving us a little bit of information where all our animal lovers and pet owners can go to for more information on how they can support veterinary research? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. If you go to our website, which is Morse Animal Foundation, so one big giant word, (laughs) .org, we have all kinds of stuff. We have some blogs that 
tend to focus on our research and our findings, but they're in lay language. We have a listing of all the studies we funded with some summaries and where they are and what they are looking for. We have information. We have all of our old donor quarterly newsletters, which have a lot of information as well in them. And you can find out a lot about the Golden Retriever Lifetime Study and all of the nested studies, which are all those little sub-studies that researchers are are doing, how to get involved in, in that. We're not enrolling anymore, but occasionally we do have some extra studies that we're doing. We're just going to do one with Purina and Alonco on osteoarthritis and canine cognitive dysfunction. Um, that's going to be run through our study. So again, a sub-study. And you can find out all that information, plus the interesting things we do with the horses and wildlife as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Deal. Again, that's morrisanimalfoundation.org. So definitely go check that out. Well, that brings me to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook or Instagram at drjustinelee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time. And again, we want to give a huge shout out to Dr. Kelly Deal from Morris Animal Foundation and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.